0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.
1: Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the seventh series of Compliance Clarified, a podcast for governance, risk, and compliance professionals around the world. I'm Nathan Lynch, the editor of Regulatory Intelligence in Asia, and it's a great privilege to be here with you today. Now we often hear about cultural failures in the field of financial services regulation. But what about when the cultural failure is at the regulator itself? That's the extraordinary situation that has arisen in Australia with the revelation that the Deputy Commissioner at Australia's Conduct Regulator has been the subject of a government investigation into allegations of bullying and other behaviour that breached the agency's own code of conduct. It's an incredible claim And it also raises questions about similar cultural breakdowns at regulatory authorities overseas. To discuss this important topic, I'm joined by our resident regulatory affairs expert in the Asia-Pacific region, Niall Coburn. Niall, it's great to have you here with us today.
0: Thank you, Nathan. Great to be here.
1: Well, haven't we got some things to discuss? Uh, For our international listeners, there have been some fascinating events in the Australian Senate in the past fortnight, uh, there were allegations that were brought up during an inquiry uh, or a hearing that ASIC, the Australian Conduct Regulator, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, appeared before. And two weeks ago, uh, it was alleged that there was an inquiry into the Deputy Commissioner of the agency, Karen Chester, and the head of the agency told the panel that there was no evidence discovered of misconduct and there were no grounds for any further action. We then heard last week, however, when ASIC returned to the Senate, that in fact, there were multiple grounds where although recollections differed, there was potentially grounds for further action. And the head of ASIC, Joe Longo, made the decision not to proceed. Now, Nile, this is an extraordinary set of events. What do you think it tells us about uh, the importance of culture within regulators?
0: Well, it just shows you that um, although you can have issues in private organisations in relation to culture, you can certainly also have them in relation uh, to regulators. And um, this one in relation to ASIC, I suppose it comes down to what does good leadership mean in the circumstances? And I think what uh, the senators were concerned about is that they don't believe that there was appropriate transparency in the information that they were being told and they suspect that they were being given one version of events where subsequently they have found out that the Deputy Commissioner, Karen Chester, wasn't totally absolved and was involved in some conduct which may have breached the ASIC... Code. So these are issues um, that we are facing more and more in relation to complaints. Um, And then, when complaints are raised, what does that mean in terms of organisations being transparent with uh, the government?
1: It's a really good point. And one of the things that Deborah O'Neill, who is a bit of a firebrand senator when it comes to the financial services sector, one of the things that she said was, in her words, "Culture matters." and You know, we've seen culture matters at the audit firms. We've seen culture matters at the large banks and during the Royal Commission, always things have come back when systems have failed or there's been breakdowns. Really, the ultimate breakdown was at a cultural level and a governance level. So do you think that there's a big lesson here that international organisations and regulators can take from what we're seeing laid bare here really in Australia in this extraordinary set of events?
0: Most definitely what we are seeing, not only in Australia, but we have also seen it in the UK and in the US. And if I may take what happened in the US first, for example, when um, you know, the Bernie Madoff situation came to light and it was revealed that the Securities and Exchange Commission um, had been receiving complaints for nine years from an uh, in, uh, investigating accountant, and not only that, from other individuals as well, and failed to act on it, Um, the SEC lost a lot of respect as a result of that, and one questioned um, what they were doing um, in not investigating those very serious complaints, and in fact went to the office of, of Bernie Madoff and did not pursue issues which probably would have been obvious to any investigator at the time. So when those things happen, there is a lack of respect and a question mark over the organisation.
1: That's right. And I mean, if we have a look as well at the United Kingdom, you know, in 2008, we saw the financial crisis and there was a huge overhaul of the Financial Services Authority, the FSA, which was split apart into conduct and prudential regulation, the FCA and the PRA. Now, isn't it fascinating, Niall, that you know you have these structural overhauls and yet here we are sometime later and there's talk now about potentially merging them again and about uh, the problem of underlaps. Do you think, once again, it comes back to culture, to governance, to these matters, when uh, it is all too easy, perhaps, for people who are in those leadership roles to point to a structural breakdown when, in fact, it's a very human breakdown?
0: I think it's always a question of good leadership. Um, when you mentioned the FSA, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, here we are where they've changed the, the structure, the badge and everything and the complaints about the FCA are very similar to those that were in the old um, organization the FSA so I, I think um, what it what needs to it needs to address is how is it keeping the um, public opinion within its purview in other words is it doing its job or is it an unspent or underused asset and at the moment, I don't think investors are really getting a good deal or complainants from um, most of the regulators internationally. And I I don't think they are doing what is expected of them um, in terms of providing leadership and answers and um, coming down on very important issues like predatory lending, investment advice, um, investment losses caused by negligence of finance, houses and banks. So, you know, these are very important issues and I think it's taking far too long for regulators um, to grapple with what is really required and there is not the leadership or the the depth of leadership um, in certainly in, you know, Australia and in England to be able to deal with um, some... Complex issues, but also give confidence to to the public. If they are not giving confidence to the public, then they are doing something wrong.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating scenario. And we, you know, in in a sense, in these revelations that we've had in Australia, and then compounding that with the Financial Services Royal Commission and the Commission's inquiry into gambling, casinos, and other related sectors. It can create an impression that Australia is this hotbed of, of poor conduct. Of course, it isn't the case. And in some regards, the fact that these commissions of inquiry and investigations and, you know, these these situations where there is accountability and, and open oversight is actually a really good thing. Uh, so in, in some regards, I guess we can look, let's look back at the case of Australia where we have had this, this uh, you know, cultural breakdown at the regulator. Uh, and yet, at the same time, you know, financial crime regulation at the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre and the Financial Intelligence Unit, we've seen excellent culture within a regulator and we've seen a regulator that would take risks and it took on two of the biggest banks and really brought them to heel. So, uh, you know, can we, can we flip it on its head now and look at examples, Niall, like the one of Austrac, where we've had really excellent culture.
0: Yeah, and I think the issue here is that regulators and you heard it from ASIC during the Royal Commission and most recently where they say they haven't got enough money, they need more of this, more of that, but the it does not take a lot of resources to investigate a case and, and Austrack have actually proved that. There you have a, an organisation with only 120 to 150 individuals um, and they can t- turn t- two banks on their head you know in in a few years so I don't I'm not really open to excuses anymore Um, I think what the issue is is that there's not enough uh, market uh, intelligence reaction and there's not enough good investigators on the ground and strong leadership to give confidence that something is happening and most um, of the public are just receiving a reason why it can't be investigated And there appears to be a lack of um, uh, intelligence gathering both in England and Australia and probably in the US in terms of being able to parcel all these um, consumer issues and so that they can be addressed in one lump sum. Like what what ASIC's doing with insurance is a very good example. So it does some things really well, yet it should learn from those things and then apply that to other more complex areas uh, and the um area mostly is where p- people have been misled by financial institutions or by their brokers that seems to be the most important issue worldwide uh, and we're seeing that um global organizations we just saw it um t- today where you know very highly respected organizations like the racq in queensland um you know, was accused of misleading consumers. Now, whether that's a computer glitch or whatever the case is, that these are issues that have been for some time and um, they need to be addressed so that the public regains confidence in its regulatory system.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, when we see these compliance breakdowns, the go-to position for, you know, far too many firms is that it was a technology failure, a coding error, this type of language is used. But of course, those of us in the risk and compliance game know that it's never the fact of a system failure. It's how that organization responds to the failure that, that really matters. You know Very few organizations get faced with litigation as a result of a technical failure. It's the ignorance of that failure and the cover-up that tends to lead to court cases. So do you think we're entering a era now Nile where hopefully potentially regulators will really start to have short shrift with those kinds of explanations and hammer things home not just to culture but also to the board and senior management who ultimately have responsibility for organizational culture
0: Yeah I think um that it is actually starting to happen and I'm not going I'm not going to be one you know, to criticize any regulator, because I know how hard the job is being an ex-one, but what we are seeing, we are seeing an impatience in the courts, where um, large organisations have come before the courts, and they're getting very significant fines, um, mostly in America, uh, Australia, and Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, That's what we're seeing, not so much in the UK, but a really good example of how things are going to change for the future is when ASIC took um, the directors of STAR um, and they're suing, being sued for civil penalty breaches and um, breaches of directors' duties um, and compliance failures. So they're holding directors to account for what they should have foreseen. If there was a need for increased compliance or increased consideration of risks, then what ASIC is saying, well, you should react to those risks. You can't sit on the sidewalk. You can't sit on the bench anymore. Um, And this is a good thing because what we gleaned from the Royal Commission and other inquiries in the US and the UK um, is that many of these issues within organisations were known for several years and not self-reported to the regulator.
1: Yeah, I mean, the case that you refer to with STAR is a really interesting one where... ASIC, for our international listeners, ASIC has gone after the senior managers and directors under Section 180 of the Corporations Act, which is an obligation to discharge director's duties and senior manager's duties with a degree of care and diligence. And, you know, it kind of shows that when regulators are pushing boundaries and, and, and trying to do interesting things with the laws that they have, they really can get uh, some quite incredible outcomes we have seen that certainly in the financial crime space where financial crime agencies that really have this pedigree from law enforcement in many cases and criminal intelligence tend to be willing to push the envelope a bit more and take on big litigation cases. So Niall, in a closing question for our listeners, it'd be fascinating to get your thoughts on that. You've been in both camps, you've been a lawyer, you've been a regulator, you've worked in industry. Do you think there's a case for regulators to kind of take more risks and push more boundaries in their enforcement action, whilst balancing, of course, with the competing obligation for them to be a model litigant and, and you know, have the best conduct in terms of the way they discharge their powers. How do they walk that line?
0: I think absolutely. I think that line hasn't been near enough walked um, some of the cases which I see, which, you know, if you take, for example, like the Sterling case where ASIC um, didn't commence an investigation and um, over 400 elderly people lost significant amounts of money. Um, And these are all very um, cases where if if regulatory action was taken at an early stage, then um, it would have saved a lot of, money and emotional um, heartache as well. But one of the things that regulators aren't doing, um, and and they have got certain powers like the product intervention power, but they're not being used enough. Um, Also, ASIC and other regulators, like the FSA and the SEC, can use their injunction powers, like if they suspect something. For example, FTX was a talking point for some time but no one took an injunction or, um, you know, the SEC or, or the Cayman regulator didn't make, um, t- take any steps. Um, so there's a many um, tools in the arsenal. But if, if you're a soldier, it's like being a soldier where you're fully armed and if the bullets are flying and you just don't want to use your gun or you just don't want to, um, you know, you want to stand there and look good, then you've got to lose the war, right? Um, You've got to be f- f- um, flexible and you've got to be have the nous and the ability to see what's out there and to be able to deal with it. If you just want to stand by and look good, really, you're an underused asset of the public, which is very expensive. And that's what regulators have really got to watch because what they should be listening to is the public feedback. And I don't think they are listening to it.
1: Great insights there Niall and uh, you know I can tell from the analogies that you use that they are insights that have come out of personal experience and being in the trenches yourself on many an occasion so it's a great privilege to get your thoughts and uh, you know for our listeners today thank you so much for tuning into the podcast it's always a pleasure to talk with you about these incredibly important issues and you know really it's confidence in the financial system that's at stake here which highlights why culture not just in our organisations, but also in our regulators, is so critical. So,
0: Niall, thanks so much
1: for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciated hearing your thoughts.
0: And thank you, Nathan, and um, I wish you all the best.
1: And until next time, stay compliant, and we look forward to giving you more insights on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence. Bye for now.
0: Compliance clarified a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.